0: Welcome to APA. My name is Ryan Scherzinger, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, Leslie Honey. Uh, Leslie Honey has been an active proponent for the conservation of species and ecosystems for over 20 years, up through her current position as Vice President of Conservation Services for NatureServe. Uh, She oversees NatureServe's Conservation Services staff with expertise in conservation planning, GIS analysis, spatial methodology, and project management. She is responsible for building capacity to make NatureServe expertise uh, and data available for effective conservation and natural resource management. She oversees the licensing relationships with NatureServe's member programs necessary to generate their multi-jurisdictional data, NatureServe's forestry program, key federal client partnerships, uh, the NatureServe Explorer website, and NatureServe's commitment to the currency and quality of aggregated data products. Uh, She holds a dual undergraduate degree in Biology and Sociology and an MS in Environmental Science and Policy from Johns Hopkins University. And now if you could please join me in welcoming Leslie Honey, tonight's speaker. Thank you very much.
1: I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I am not a planner by trade, I'm a biologist. Uh, Patrick Christ, I want to first acknowledge him and there's contact information for him on uh, the card I, sent, I left out there is our conservation planner he's located in boulder uh, so i'm lucky enough to come and speak with you all and hopefully give you a coherent presentation on the work that we do to try to encourage um, uh, looking at conservation from the get-go in any planning process that's really what we uh, what we're all about i will also say that in some ways you're lucky you have me patrick helped me put this presentation together he sent me 90 slides. <laughs> I've cut it down to, I think, around 35 or so. Um, and hopefully, it's still coherent. But uh, I can't even talk through 80 slides, let alone you all listen to it. So um, what I want to cover tonight is, you know, first of all, when we're talking about it at NatureServe, I'm not going to talk much about our organization. Happy to answer questions afterwards if you're interested. I figure what we're really focused on today is the planning process. So just want to kind of, in, in the way we look at things, what do we mean by conservation? What are some of the challenges um, that we face? That's cool, I have a screen right there. <laughs> um, really trying to, to send the message that conservation as a land is, is something to be taken into consideration. It is a land use. And that there is a role for planners um, in the uh, conservation arena and how can planners better integrate conservation, and then I'll give you just some, really mainly some examples of some work that we've done um, with planning. So in in the context of conservation, really what we're talking about is we're looking at retaining a sustainable area where elements of biodiversity, so when we say elements, we mean things of, of concern, biodiversity of concern, plants, animals, ecosystems, those sorts of things, elements of concern um, are sustained. And so in the biological realm, you really do have to look at area, not just specifically what is there. Uh, So we look at area. We look at what areas require to maintain a viable population, for instance, of a species, or the integrity of an ecosystem. Uh, We look at... um, uh, also, we look at it in the context, the, the whole context of compatible land use. So, once again, we're not, we're not really just looking at species or habitats. We're looking at the entire process. Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about ecological services. Um, all of that really is something that needs to be taken in consideration when you're doing planning for conservation. And, uh, once again... This is really, we're not just looking at parcels of land put aside just for conservation. We're trying to make sure that this is integrated and incorporated in any land use plan because uh, you will see that with changes, you know, predicted changes in uh, development, climate change, those sort of things, there's impacts everywhere, and there are, there is biodiversity everywhere that should be taken into consideration. So once again, we're not looking at... Um, Uh, just bioreserves, but also we're looking at areas that could be restored to a condition where the ecological processes are um, healthy. So, like I said, where does biodiversity occur? One of the things that NatureServe does with our member programs is we collect information about where populations of at-risk species and uh, communities are on the ground. So this is just a representation of Populations of at risk species within the United States. There's close to a million occurrences uh, that you can't really tell there, but that's about a million occurrences of populations. And as you can see, um, biodiversity occurs everywhere. And so we want to make sure it's taken into consideration. So some of the challenges, um, usual, well, at least for us, it's usual suspects habitat conversion for other uses, uh, you know, housing, those types of things. Um, fragmentation of habitat. so even if a given area maintains little islands, that's not enough to conserve biodiversity in some cases or to conserve those processes. Climate change is already impacting um, biodiversity, so we're more and more seeing the need for large intact areas uh, with you know, good connectivity to allow exchange of um, genes and so forth to ensure biodiversity is maintained. So just some of those challenges. Uh, we work a lot with Dave Theobald's lab and they did a 30-year um, a sequence of, of housing density and back in 1960 you know some of the usual suspects on the East Coast there and in California starting to, to rev up a little bit. Looking in 1990 already you're seeing a lot more housing density um, than you did in the 60s. Now we're looking a little bit of a projection in 2020 And then once you go to 2050, areas where before you hardly saw any red, especially in the uh, the Midwest, mid part of the U.S., all of a sudden you're seeing some really, really dense areas of um, housing density. So one of the things that we also do is we develop these landscape condition models. And so this landscape condition model is basically looking at how, once again, how intact an ecosystem is. And so the areas that have high intact... Quality, the greens and then low is usually if and you can correlate that with that housing uh, map that you saw where there's the development and so forth the integrity of that system is really degraded um, unless you look to try and manage for it and even then sometimes um, you're still going to be degraded here's another example of work that we did Uh, With BLM out west, the yellow area is a BLM planning area. They're looking to do a lot of uh, energy development there. And, of course, one of the species of concern uh, under the Endangered Species Act is the greater sage grouse. So what you see here is this is a, a model that was done to show, again, climate effects. And so when we look at planning, we also look at what could be coming in terms of the biodiversity. And so this is a projection projection uh, 50 years out, and the change in the species range. So everything that is blue there used to, is currently greater sage-grouse um, habitat. With the projection, all of that blue goes away. And so really what this is telling BLM is um, you need to look at the areas here that within your planning area that are purple, because that shows, given the change in climate, that's where the greater sage-grouse will be likely found in the future. So if you're planning for that, and they do have to plan over these multi-year integrals, uh, you need to look there specifically for that species. And so this is one of those elements that they would need to take into consideration, as well, of course, the other requirements that BLM as an agency has, which is, Mineral uh, resources, energy resources, etc. So, we want to, um, once again, NatureServe and what we do with our planning work is we really want to emphasize how important it is to think of conservation um, function as a land use and to incorporate that planning from the beginning of a process. It's not something that you do after the fact, after you've, you've decided what your transportation route is going to be and so forth, because then really what you're doing is you're mitigating against potential impacts rather than trying to avoid where possible impacts. So our focus is on avoidance. Um, and it is a land use, just like any other land use. It does provide public welfare. Um, they're the economic values. It's talking about ecological systems. Uh, especially with the increase in population, the demand for fresh water. All of these things are really critical in the way that you maintain some of these critical services is to maintain the the integrity of an ecosystem. So some misconceptions that we found when we've worked with planners, um, we've worked a lot with local planners like counties and so forth, is um, that... They, they think that conservation um, is sort of the, the last thing. It happens after everything else to taken care of, and, and whatever you can do at that point is fine. Uh, it's also the case that a lot of folks think, well, we've got these great land trusts in our community, and aren't they buying up all the great areas? Well, the reality is that a lot of them have limited resources, uh, so that they aren't really planning in terms of looking at the, the area of their interest and planning strategically, they're more reactive. They may be um, given land through a will or something like that. That land, in terms of conservation and biodiversity, may really, may not be very, uh, uh, very relevant. And so, to assume that a land trust is taking care of it is uh, a misconception. And then the last piece is, um, you know, that is taken care of by the state regulators. The map I showed you before, uh, it includes all at-risk species according to you know some international ranking uh, systems. Only a small fraction of those are covered under any kind of legal regulation. The idea is you want to keep all those other thousands and thousands of species from getting listed so that you're not dealing with, with regulations. I mean, that's good for everybody. So um, maybe some of the things that might be unique about conservation land use as opposed to other land use. It's not its not transportable. Um, usually you're stuck with an area <laughs> where the thing, the biodiversity element occurs. It's very difficult to recreate that ecosystem and, and everything that that species or that vegetative type or that plant needs to survive. Um, and so it's not something that, it's something that you really have to conserve where you find it. Um, and um, there's been many attempts to try to reconstruct or, you know, transport things, and they're usually not very effective and they're incredibly expensive. So once again, in the planning process early on, that is a concern that you're gonna have to deal with. Deal with it before and maybe figure out an alternative that does not impact it, can save significant amount of money. As well as the, the resource. So the um, the framework that we, the sort of the conceptual framework that that we um, uh, think of when we're looking at starting a conservation planning project um, includes, once again, um, treating conservation as a land use. Uh, treating it as a land use basically requires integration. So it's not a plan in and of itself or by itself. It's a piece of a plan. And there's a recognition that there's other uses, competing uses that need to be taken in consideration. So we're really looking at making sure that all of those needs and uses are are taken in consideration and figure out maybe what's a sweet spot, if there is a sweet spot. But we also know that in many cases there will still be conflicts. Um, So getting to the conflicts, the really important thing is once again up front, if you know um, if you are up front and know where most things occur and then also what's your envelope of options, you can then make decisions, um, alternative scenarios and make decisions based on that. And then uh, just want to emphasize it as a collaborative project or or planning um, process. Any planning program or project that we enter into, it's always collaborative with many different uh, resource needs, not just conservation. Many different sectors, I should say. So um, just a schematic of that envelope of options. Uh, what we see here is, you know, there's gonna be um, conservation elements here, and rare plant population. Uh, that really, once again, it's not transportable. We're, we're kind of stuck with that. As well as the infrastructure here, that's in place, that's not going any place. And this highway that has to go from point A to B. And so within this area though, um, if you're looking on developing, there are areas that you can, that, you know, you can try to avoid. So you wanna try to avoid where plant populations. But here is an area where you're not gonna be able to avoid <coughs> a conflict. In that case, then you do design measures to try to um, mitigate it. This is an easy one. It's a highway overpass, underpass, something like that. So um, a planning uh, process in the past was sort of like there's this funnel where a land use planner needed to sort of take in all this information about species and agricultural lands, historic sites, and you basically throw it in and they're expected to come up with a, with a, a plan just by pulling in all this information. Uh, that's really not an effective planning process. Really, what you want to look towards is you want to look towards um, a collaboration, a collaborative process where you're looking at infrastructure planning, land use planning, and conservation planning. And this is something that seems to be intuitive, and yet it really doesn't happen that often. I mean, um, it really requires more of a, a political will to make it happen. Sometimes it's a uh, little more expensive. It takes a lot more time. Um, could or couldn't, depends on what you're doing. And so it's it's something that has to be proactively done or thought of because it's not happening just for the most part. So one of the concepts within the systematic conservation planning, once again, it's element or target-based. So this is what I am saying, where we say a certain species is an element or a target. And... Instead of a, um, within this area, you know, we have these needs, we have to look specifically as to where those targets are because they are set in stone, so to speak. Uh, we look to meet qualitative, quantitative goals for the elements. So in a planning process, what we do, with biodiversity at least, is we identify what is required to maintain a viable population, for example, of a species. And these are quantitative as much as biology can be quantitative. But we set goals, very specific goals. Um, And then, once again, looking at matching the appropriate land use and management to these element sensitivities. So we're not looking for the strict reserve-oriented approach. But we are looking to have flexibility in the land use. And once again, looking at the trade-offs and what could and could not be impacted. And uh, within our group, we are really using, uh, trying to increasingly use and optimize the tools that are available. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end, but there are uh, a significant number of tools out there that could help in the planning process, especially within the conservation uh, planning process. So the questions that when you first come into the thing from a conservation perspective that we ask is, uh, once again, what is the planning area What features are of conservation concern and where are they? And then how are they doing? Because sometimes when you are balancing um, different scenarios and alternatives and there is going to be impact, you certainly want to identify those areas that are the healthiest and the least, uh, and the ones that you least want to impact if you can uh, come up with a scenario that accomplishes that. And then, of course, we look at whether we have the conflicts with our conservation goals um, as well as how we can potentially mitigate those conflicts. And ultimately, we also try to come up with when we do a plan is how will we then measure how, we, how, how we're progressing towards meeting whatever our goals happen to be. And when I say goals, I do need more, once again, than conservation goals. Goals could be that we need to establish X number of wind farms to support Uh, energy needs for a community of X population size. So there are multiple goals um, with conservation being one of them. So for instance, this is um, just some maps that were uh, developed with a project that we did in Peru Uh, using a a decision support tool that NatureServe developed along with some other tools that we interoperate with. But the first thing, uh, the first map that you see there is we gather the information to identify what biodiversity occurs within that project area, and what our goals are in terms of trying to conserve that biodiversity. Uh, we then look at the other um, need within this area. The, this area in Peru is just the, the forestry and agricultural use. Um, it's really prime area for that, and there's a real economic need for that work. So looking at those two things, the first thing you do is you look at where the potential conflict zones are. So one of the things we did is because the government really wanted to know is, is there anything we can start doing without there being conflict? And then over time, can we deal with the areas where there are conflict and see what we can do? So anything you see in green here um, is uh, areas where you can, you do not have, uh, or excuse me, anything you see in the gray, uh, I think that back, green, uh, there is no conflict. the yellow there is some conflict, and the red is where there's significant conflict and so some of the some of the uh, forestry and agricultural uses were started even though the long term plan was not in place because it identified areas where there was no conflict um, and we 're still working on the areas where there are conflict so um, Quickly, I just wanted to touch upon really the high-level the, the high stuff. Um, the other area that I mentioned is the t- role for tools. Um, so when I'm talking about tools here, because we, we use tools a lot interchangeably, tools to us also sometimes means a process. Uh, but in this particular circumstance, I'm talking about a software system. Um, and so we, within the conservation planning um, realm we use a number of tools to help us with the planning and uh, we're looking as I said for software system and the reason why we've been focusing a lot on this is because it really first of all we're looking for tools that are already there we're not looking to reinvent the wheel Um, too often that happens especially in terms of software development and so forth Uh, we want to try and make our work more efficient more um, defensible and more repeatable because I mentioned a scenario uh, analysis or process that we do. So if you're looking, if you're identifying all your targets and what you're trying to reach, you're going to want to go through a couple, 10, 15, 20, it depends how many scenarios you need to see what all the alternatives are to best optimize what you're trying to accomplish. So in order to do that, to have a software tool that lets you put in all of the base information that you're going to be reusing over and over again, Um, and pulling in different models with different scenarios is really helpful. Um, And uh, some of the tools, and one of the tools that we've developed at Vista. another really great use of it is that you can, from these tools, you can uh, provide products that show a lot of what you're trying to accomplish to your stakeholder group. So it's a great communication tool to have these things where you can show the different scenarios, run anything on the fly if somebody asks you about something. We've had that happen in some of the local planning projects that we've done. Well, what if, what if we weren't as interested in this? What would happen? Would, you, would we achieve this other goal that we want to achieve? So it's really quite, um, quite useful uh, to have those types of tools. So once again, I uh, kind of covered this already. What might tools help us do? It does document and integrate the stakeholders uh, input. Um, once we get the data in, doing the multiple analyses is so much easier. Um, also, obviously, when you use these tools, you can perform some pretty complex analyses that you just can't do without the software product. Um, I'm always a little bit, this last bullet I put up there, I always want to caveat that a little bit because at least uh, with, with any planning process, you really do need experts. It's not as if everything is just available and anybody could just come in and, and say, oh, you, you know, here's the information that I pulled off of uh, the Internet, and you should be able to make your, your decisions. Uh, you ser- certainly do need the live expertise, but there are resources out there that can be pulled into the process that can really help the process, um, like models and so forth, like I was showing before in, in housing density change and those kinds of things. And once again, um, really what we're looking to do when we are using a, a tool or a toolkit is to integrate the data analysis from all of the different sectors or disciplines. Um, we're an expert in the biodiversity realm, and we have uh, a lot of expertise in in developing the data and the information that would go into a planning project related to that. But we don't have expertise in, um, I don't know how many BTUs, is that even what it is, BTUs, I think, um, is needed to support a... Uh, a population, a community, or something like that. So there's always um, uh, the uh, cross-sector, cross-discipline requirement. And uh, it does allow you to collaborate a little bit more with other organizations, as I said. Just um, some caveats, what they can't do. As I said before, it can't really replace a lack of planning knowledge um, and clear goals uh, Garbage in, garbage out. Everybody knows that. You have, to have all, you, you have to have that knowledge, and you have to have those clear goals and objectives. A lot of folks, when we um, work with tools, ask, well, why don't you just use GIS? Uh, you know, we have some really awesome GIS analysts, and there's a lot of GIS analysts out there, but once again, it's not a replacement for a planner. Um, it's another resource that's used in the planning process and um, some of these tools you may be able to run them you may have your analysts be able to run them and so forth but it doesn't necessarily mean that you really know everything that's going on we use a lot of modeling tools to predict as i said climate change and there's a lot that goes into these models that uh, a planner doesn't necessarily understand or a lot of people don't necessarily understand um and it certainly does not you more than what the underlying information and data that is fed into the system can tell you. It really just lets you work with it in many different ways, um, but it doesn't tell you more than what you're able to put in there. And I think the other thing is, um, you, you know, tools won't make anybody do what they don't want to do if they're not really pleased <laughs> with, a, with an outcome or something. It's not like, oh, because the tool said it, it's, we should do it, obviously. So um, just um, a study. Uh, we didn't put this in just for Ryan. It, it was actually a pretty worthwhile study. Um, this is just some of the conservation planning tools out there. Uh, there's circu- We use a lot the Circuitscape, the Climate Wizard, Community Viz is used a lot. Um, NatureServe Vista is one of the tools there. And what it was interesting what the um, report found, and Ryan, you can give more information if I'm just touching upon it is that of all of the planners who responded the majority of them really didn't were not aware of um, these tools Uh, so there's a real disconnect there from the planning community that there are these tools that can support um, conservation planning in the planning process but what was interesting is i don't think that the planners um, very hard to find these because we just put in a Google search and the first three things that came up when you put in conservation planning tools are three of the the conservation planning tools that were on that list so there's there's a a big disconnect in terms of um, I guess marketing that there are these resources and these tools available Uh, we were in this um, analysis we were pleased that actually Nature Servista had a pretty good rating in terms of, of use, but not many people knew about it. Um, and for those small percentage of folks who did know about the tools, they said, well, what were some of the obstacles in using them? What prevented you from using them in your, in your work? Some were the cost of the software. Uh, there's time needed to learn the tool, cost of training. Um, but um, And then a number of them said that the current tools, uh, a small number said the current tools are sufficient. But once again, if you correlate that with the number of responders who said they didn't even know there were any tools out there, obviously there's a real disconnect. So um, I had asked Patrick if he'd give me a picture of him uh, there instead of this uh, weird guy because he does a lot of a lot of home projects, but um, when we start with a planning process and, and as I said, using tools, it's never just one tool. One tool is not enough. It's really a toolkit approach. Um, And because, you know, these projects have different needs and you you need to have a process where, depending on what your, challenges or what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You may have to pull in for instance some of those climate change scenarios like we did with BLM and and helping them figure out an energy plan that would meet their multiple needs. Or if it's a development working with uh, some of the other tools that really focus on what is going to be population growth or something like that. Things that for instance our conservation planning tool does not take into consideration. So you need to really understand what's out there and pull those all in. (coughs) And the way that we look at it is that you really need a a toolkit. And and this is a simple structure that speaks to it. There's the integration tool. So you do need something that can pull in all of the different pieces from multiple sources so that you can actually use that to come up with a cohesive plan. And one thing you need, there are a lot of uh, tools out there to engage stakeholders in the process, and that's always critical uh, to do that from the get-go. There's a lot of data modeling tools, so there's that community, uh, excuse me, the climate change tool, the housing density, um, socioeconomic models, all of those different types of things, as well as models for, like, species distribution and stuff. So that's also when you're looking at especially long-range Plans in conservation. You know where something may be now, but you really have to look at where they may be in the future. Then there's the development tools that um, look at energy infrastructure, those types of uh, needs. And then of course you also have other conservation planning tools that look at mitigation opportunities and land allocation optimization. So I'm just gonna touch really quickly on on Nature Servista, which is our tool. It was, we, let's see, it's going on, I think it's been over 10 years since this was developed. It's a a desktop GIS application freely available for download um, off of our site. I put a card back there if you're interested in learning more about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because just talking about VISTA is is a whole discussion in and of itself. Uh, but we uh, received a lot of support to develop this over 10 years ago because there really wasn't something that integrated that conservation component with um, these other tools, and so HSR Vista was developed. And the key functions um, of the thing of the uh, software is it does facilitate the planning processes, but it's uh, it has that focus on conservation, which was the missing ingredient before. And as I said, what uh, what prompted us to develop the tool. Um, It really does take you through the whole process, so gathering the information um, about the biodiversity in your area, capturing it in the software tool so that you can run those different scenarios based on what you know is there. Um, As I said, it is GIS-based, but it does have a relatively friendly GUI, um, relatively. uh, So non-experts, can use it they have used it um, and it does as I said it is a conservation focus so it does uh, it's focused on conservation but it is designed to integrate those other values and needs um, and objectives in a planning process Uh, one of the key things that we do in our planning program is um, try to where we work with communities and so forth really to transfer knowledge and so we help them sometimes set up if they need help setting up, but the whole process is meant to really make them self sufficient because a plan is not a static thing. It really should be something that's looked at on a regular basis, evaluate how you're doing um, to meet your goals. And so we look to make sure that folks can take what was done in a planning project where we are involved and continue to use that and um, to inform their directions if they need to uh, change their, uh, their plans. So when, when we look at a toolkit, like I said, you know, NatureServista is really that framework integration tool. But we use all of these other tools uh, depending on the project. Not every single one. Like I said, it depends on what your project is and what you're trying to accomplish. In any given... Um, project, we would maybe only use a couple of them. So for instance, uh, and I'm going to show you an example of one where we really used very extensively sort of the integration between VISTA and Community Viz, which a lot of you may know. Anybody familiar with community? Because that's more of a traditional language. Um, But uh, all of these are very, um, there's a lot of really great tools out there. And if you're interested, there is um, In learning more, there's the Google, but there's also a a site. It's called the EBM Tools Network, uh, which, although, for the most part, when it first started, focused on coastal marine planning um, tools, it's really a very excellent resource to learn about the tools out there for uh, planning and specifically conservation planning. And it's just ebmtools.org. Oh well, since I'm giving the um, an example of where we interoperated with Community Viz, I just want to you know make sure we acknowledge it was funded by the Morton Family Foundation and uh, the project that I'm going to just really briefly give you some examples of it was a collaboration with Placeways, um, NatureServe, and NatureServe's member program in Colorado, our Colorado Natural Heritage. Um, so quickly, once again, community this for those who don't know, it's, uh, it's also an ArcGIS extension. Oops, sorry about that. Um, just a little bit more information. It's got a really nice interface uh, with a lot of wizards and um, reports and so forth that are pretty helpful, I think. But what we did is we did a planning um, project, as I said, in Colorado, looking at the area in Pueblo and El Paso, where they were trying to come up with um, mainly a transportation corridor plan. And um, so what we did is we brought in common land use classification schemes. We brought it into VISTA and into Community Viz. Community Viz then uses that land use classification and it runs growth models. you know, um, urban um, population growth and and housing density type growth models. And then the surrounding infrastructure that could be developed because of that population growth. Uh, So it runs those models in and then it sends the outcomes into VISTA. And then VISTA analyzes the impact of those growth models on the conservation elements. Um, And then creates mitigation scenarios to preserve those key conservation elements Once again, let me just step back here and say when you're developing um, a project like this, you, as part of your stakeholder process, you define what your conservation element is. And uh, usually it includes things listed under endangered species or something like that. But depending on the communities, oftentimes there are other things that they're really interested in for a lot of the reasons why it's so important to conserve biodiversity. Uh, So those elements are defined as part of that process. And you also define what your goals are for those elements. So it's not necessarily the case that you're going to preserve 100% of a known population of, of, you know, a a toad, but rather you want to ensure that you're maintaining at least 80% of it. So that kind of input, that expert input, is part of that initial process. So you look at what the impacts would be on those key conservation elements. And then there are different scenarios that VISTA creates that then goes back into community viz to then analyze those scenarios against the um, growth impact from those mitigations. So what are the economic uh, results if you were to go with this scenario or that scenario? And that's what I'm saying. It's kind of an iterative process, and so it may go through a, a few times until you find that sweet spot. I am getting close to the end. So here's just some... Um, uh, products that were developed from that project. Uh, You have your baseline. um, This comes from community viz. Basically, you know, where are the open space, the urbanization areas, uh, high density urban, suburban, those kinds of things. Um, And then here's a scenario with the current zoning um, laws within that project area. uh, What could happen? And so one of the, you know, a couple of the things where you've got some Private land may be developed later, uh, those sort of things. So this is just what would happen if there was absolutely no planning done for uh, biodiversity or conservation. Then you would import that scenario into VISTA, and VISTA is then where you also capture all those conservation elements that you're interested in uh, so that you can then compare what that growth would mean to those elements. And in this case, it kind of comes up with a report. You'll see here, it's really hard to see, but what the tool does is it will tell you of your elements that you've defined that you want to conserve, how many, given this scenario, are you, will reach the goal that you set. So green, you reached your goal. Red, you didn't, etc. So it really kind of tells you through that process, if you go with this scenario or this plan, how is it going to affect what you're trying to accomplish? Um, and then taking that map out further in this area, uh, you know, it will show you in the gray where there's no elements, conservation elements present, uh, leaves, leaves it open once again for other types of development. Um, where there are elements present, but where the current scenario, even though there may be development, would not impact those elements. And then once again, where there are elements that you are looking to preserve, um, where given that current scenario, you would not meet the goals that you had established as part of your stakeholder process. <coughs> then once you have that um, you may you can then bring this those results in uh, once again into Vista and say well this isn't good enough. I have all of this red here and I really that's not acceptable to my stakeholder group. So What can I do instead? Well, I can maybe change an alternate land use here. Um, And if I did that, would that improve some of these areas in red that we really don't find acceptable? So once again, it could go through that process of trying to find the best best scenario that meets your multiple objectives. Um, So it's, it's a, sort of a simple process. It incorporates the, um, once again, what we do is we incorporate that, that mitigation shape file into the VISTA scenario and reevaluate to confirm the desired results. We send it back to community viz and make sure the socioeconomic outcomes are what the community is hoping for. And then we continue to um, do these iterations until we get to where we want to be. So um, in some uh, oftentimes, um, you guys, it's probably not that complicated, but in some folks everybody's saying, oh, that just sounds really complicated. There are a number of, especially in terms of the conservation arena, um, there are a number of resources. So for example, um, there are these organizations that really serve under uh, underprivileged communities where they really don't have the expertise or the funding to bring in other folks. Their whole goal is to work with them to try to apply conservation to a planning process. Uh, we also, there are other um, avenues. Forest Service found that many local governments rely on local tra- land trusts. That could be good or bad depending on the resources a land trust has. We've worked with actually a number of land trusts because they have that relationship with the local government, but they don't have, have the expertise, and so sometimes they go to um, planners who do have expertise in conservation planning. Uh, there's also the NGOs like NatureServe, the Nature Conservancy, Audubon, and so forth who have planning services. Um, I will touch just a little bit. Folks were asking beforehand about who NatureServe is. Uh, NatureServe is a, we're a nonprofit organization. We have a network of programs that are in every state in the U.S., every province in Canada, and 13 countries in Latin America. So. We're a Western Hemisphere organization, been around for 40 years, and really the, the main focus of NatureServe in the network is to collect information on biodiversity within a local jurisdiction. So within the states, we have state natural heritage programs, if any of you have heard of them. actually, um, Virginia and Maryland have great, very strong programs. And what they do is they really uh, go out in inventory to identify where on the ground at-risk species and communities are and how they're doing. And then what we do is we aggregate that information to try and inform conservation decisions. Uh, We also then have the biological and ecological expertise, um, and um, over the last 10 years have really moved into some of the planning um, activities, once again focused on conservation, not on general planning. So uh, there are a number of resources to pull in a team member in a planning process who has expertise with conservation planning. Uh, And there are also a lot of um, resources to be trained to do it if there's interest. So, once again, I guess I just want to reiterate, you know, the the mantra that we always say um, and want to try and get across is that conservation is a land use that supports public values. It's really something that um, we would hope that would be taken into consideration not because of regulatory concerns uh, but for all of the other reasons that we had talked about. <clears throat> it's very, you know, the planning process is defensible and, and as I said we do sort of establish measurable goals and so it's not just uh, people always say oh well I don't I don't really see this as being you know uh Type of planning, but um, it is, and there is a lot of a lot of projects out there that have proven that that is the case. Um, as I said, the there are a lot of tools that can support this, and I encourage folks to become familiar with it. Um, no need to to not take advantage of the resources out there. And. Uh, the most important thing, and I've said this a couple of times, is the planning process. You know, as you all know, it's a collaborative process, and um, getting the the conservation stakeholders in there as soon as possible is, is a win-win situation, and uh, something that we hope um, we hope more and more planning projects do. That's it. If you're interested more in uh, in conservation planning or Vista, it's our website. Um, the expert on this is Patrick. He's located in Boulder, otherwise he would have been the one doing this talk. And uh, he's, uh, you can reach him, email. And um, As I said, there's some materials back there if anybody wants any other information.
0: Thanks, Leslie. We have a little bit of time for questions. Are there any questions from the audience? I
1: see one. Could you give me one Could you give me one or two examples more recent project you did? Uh, Well, actually, that BLM project that I showed you, uh, that was just completed in the last four months. Uh, We also did, uh, NatureServe works a lot with the federal agencies, land management agencies or species management agencies in our planning process. Uh, So there's been, obviously, with the development out west, there's been a number of projects we've worked on um, there's the sage one, there was also an energy development project in the Nevada, California area, wind energy, uh, where we worked with them to try to minimize impacts on biodiversity. We did a project in Colombia this last year, um, in uh, Latin America, where there was, um, uh, with the municipal government there, in terms of mining leases and impacts on biodiversity. Um, So those are a few within the last 12, 15 months.
2: I'm curious about um, kind of turning the picture around the other way. How are you anticipating growth? Um, You know, you, you conserve a piece of land and say a habitat starts maybe growing larger and larger. Do you Also, kind of in your scenario building, um, look at, like, phases or future, you know, so as localities can can kind of start planning, get ahead of the curve, um, maybe, or look at how land trusts could, in conjunction with conservation Mm -hmm. areas, actually work together very well or agricultural land. Um, and also, I guess that ties into my other thought. I'm just curious about the transition from you know I'm more concerned about the edges. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're saving in the middle, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of it, it's kind of like um, city planning you kind of look at where the edges you know begin and end.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a couple responses there. I think the first is one thing that I don't think the conservation Um, community does well is coordinate a little bit better like for instance with the land trusts and so forth to help to identify uh, more proactively things that we can do to prevent some of those impacts Um, when a project is when we do a project there is always going to be conflicts and as I was saying when, when we enter into a project, it's usually a, a team where there is expertise, not just obviously with conservation planning, but with the socioeconomic needs of the community. And the stakeholders really have to weigh what it is that they want to accomplish. We're in there trying to promote conservation, but it's recognized that there's also socioeconomic realities that are happening. There's um, population growth that is happening and so forth. And so any project does... Have to take into consideration what those other objectives are, and then what we try to do is then we try to minimize the impact. I think with the edges, I'm hoping I'm answering your questions. Um, with the edges, that is a real concern, and so one of the slides I showed is one of the things we have to identify is really the area because there needs to be enough of the of not the edges to ensure the viability of a population, and so. Um, that comes to area, size of area, and that's something that you, know, you, you need expertise to kind of identify what that area needs to be to conserve. I think the other really important thing, especially in the populated areas, um, is even really rare species could have very specific niches and they could be very constricted areas. And so um, even in very populated areas, you're gonna find some of these very at-risk species. So you want to make sure that you're you're planning that you're not impacting that, but you're also looking to plan for quarters. I think that's the other really big concern that um, conservationists have in terms of preserving biodiversity. You really need to let them be able to to move and, and move genes and so forth to ensure that the viability of that species continues. So sometimes you can't preserve... All of the big areas that you want, but you can preserve the corridors. And so, like I said, the population may decrease by 80 uh, percent or by 20 percent, but you still have 80 percent that's preserved, and you have that corridor which will maintain the viability of a population. So it's all balancing. Did I answer your question? Okay. Well, I'd like to ask about the data that's used, because these are pretty data-intensive analyses. Where does it come from? Um, Is it within the software itself, or is there a database that is generally available? That's a great question, and I think that's one of the real challenges. Um, In the United States, we're actually pretty fortunate that we do have a lot of data. One of, as I was saying, just giving you a little history about nature, sir, because I think that's that's appropriate to, or relevant to your question. Um, When we started off as an organization, our whole goal was to collect that information on biodiversity. And so there is a map that was shown up there right now. We have aggregated over 900,000 shapes of, of populations of species on the ground. So within the United States, there's a lot of information about where Biodiversity occurs for at-risk species. There's also some really good mapping that's being done in terms of vegetation, um, uh, you know, through satellite imagery and so forth. So there is some of this information is freely available. Some of it you go to the uh, stewards of the data and get. Um, so there's a lot of that baseline data. But what you don't have is you still need the expertise to say is this area big enough to sustain this population? That's not something that you're gonna just be able to pull in to a database from um, a data provider. You need an expert to come in and say, if this is an element that you're, you wanna conserve, this is what it's gonna take. So you always need the expert knowledge. Any others? I've spoken like a true biologist, right? <laughs> Um, Once you've gone through the planning process and you identified the conservation areas or the parcels, what financial resources do you then tap into to compensate the property owners if you put in conservation easements or outright acquisition? The um, – any planning – well, okay, I think there's two answers to that. First of all, by – we we don't purchase – um, land. We're not uh, a land trust, so NatureServe itself does not do that. We work on trying to develop a plan that meets communities or stakeholders' goals, and then it's usually the stakeholder who has to then make that decision. So part of their goals would be: we only have this much resource, this money, resources to put into acquiring land as easements, for example. So that would be one of the things that you have to um, you have to. Consider when you're coming up with a scenario that they're ultimately going to be planning around. For instance, it's a lot of counties that we work with that usually have funds or something like that. Or if it's, um, uh, I mean, there's always issues with federal federal agencies, um, you know, with land, uh, their federal land and so forth, or acquiring additional land. But that gets into a policy arena, which we're not engaged in.
0: Any um, others? I'm just wondering, looking at uh, your uh, going through the various tools available in your toolkit and actually uh, integrating several tools, It, I wonder how one would present that to the public as opposed to agencies or companies or, mm-hmm. or a more expert audience? Because uh, it, it just strikes me as, uh, as something that would appear to the public as a kind of a black box uh, mm-hmm. uh, tool. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: no, um, this kind of presentation is not usually what you would do for the public. Usually what you are doing is you are showing the results and like I said, we've had situations where we've we've been with a stakeholder group, and uh, uh, we we did a bunch of work in Nevada and some counties, and they would then just say, "Well, I want to see what happens if X, Y, or Z." So they don't necessarily know what's going on in the background, but they can see how different, um, different emphasis on what you're trying to accomplish would would result in different plans, and that has actually been pretty that's been a, a great way to sort of bring people into appreciating that whole process because they can manipulate it while you're just sitting there. So there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of maps and, and visuals and stuff really to try to walk people through what the plans are showing, and that helps, but it is a little bit of a, a black box. But the other thing is, if you use some of the software, the nice thing, as I said about using the software, is that all of your decisions are captured. So if anybody asks you four years down the road, why did you decide to do that? You can go in and you can say, well, it's because as part of that planning process, our stakeholder group said that this is their priority. And so that is why we did X, Y, or Z. So at least you've got a paper trail, a true paper trail that doesn't get lost. And you can build upon. So that's also. Compelling when
0: you tell people about that. Any others? Okay. Oh, one more. All right. Hi. I, thank you for the presentation. Um, I have a question. I, I
2: noticed. I noticed you said you're not an advocacy organization, right? It's, so it's a, it's a nonprofit. So I guess I'm just sort of curious about in other words you, do you do you ever sort of turn down clients or do you ever or or do you just say you know we're uh our, you know no, we're not going to work for a developer or do you sort of say you know our role is just
1: to provide the data and we'll you know we'll work for cuz i just i'm just sort of thinking about mm-hmm. i'm thinking like one thing on the table right now, obviously like keystone pipeline for example and and you, and you look at the uh I mean at the EIS and i guess it's sort of coming to to to, to now that the uh, the contractor for the state department that wrote the EIS apparently had something to do with TransCanada, who's actually the pipeline. So I'm just sort of curious, you know, how does the, you know conflicts of interest and those
2: sorts of things? How do you sort of negotiate around some of that?
1: Um, well, uh, first of all, a nonprofit can be a advocacy group. If I could say that word, uh, but you're right, we're not, uh, and we will work with. We'll work with um, any client or partner who really wants to take into consideration the the biodiversity in their plan. Uh, The the worst case scenario, as far as we're concerned, is that you're not using that expertise and that information to make an informed decision. You may make a decision that we, um, as an organization, whose mission is to conserve biodiversity, um, find pretty distasteful, but it's even, as I said, our attitude is it's even worse if they don't come to us. We may have an opportunity then to sway them if they do come to us. So that's the approach we take. And and I, I'll just also say that the best-case scenario, and this has happened, is the pipeline folks come to us, but then also the communities come to us for the same data, and they are using the same data so that they have apples and apples to compare and so they can go and they can then, then they can go in and, and do the political process which is we've got this data we both have this data and let's work out really what's best for all of us and so that's the best case scenario Every now and that it happens
0: okay I think we'll leave it there and on behalf of APA thanks very much Elizabeth, if we could all give her a round of applause thank you very much,
1: thanks very much.